Chapter 17, the final chapter of Twenty Years' Experience as a Ghost Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Twenty Years' Experience as a Ghost Hunter by Elliot O'Donnell Chapter 17, A Case from Japan since Japan is a country in which I believe many people are intensely interested, I do not think I need apologize for introducing here the following account of a Japanese haunting. Never having been to Japan, I cannot lay claim to having had any ghostly adventures there myself, but as this is copied, word for word, from the manuscript of Mr. G. Salas, which was very kindly lent me for the purpose by Mrs. Salas, Mr. Salas's mother, I can most certainly answer for its authenticity. In the spring of 1913 I settled in the village of Akaji, in the southern island of Japan, in order to work a colliery. The country in this part is mountainous and quite off the track of any tourists, and the inhabitants remain in a very primitive condition. All the people are either farmers, miners, or the keepers of very small shops, and there is not a single hotel nor even an inn. I stayed at first in one of the rooms of a farmhouse, and, after a little while, was able to lease an old thatched farmhouse, standing in a small orange orchard, quite close to the colliery. Its owner lived in a little house at the back. My house was one-storied, but very high, the pitch of the thick thatch being very steep. On entering, one found a kitchen with various cooking-places, but no chimneys, the smoke curling and losing itself among the huge rafters that supported the roof. The rest of the house was raised, and consisted of four rooms divided from each other by sliding paper-covered screens, or fusuma, and with thick-padded straw mats, or totemi, on the floor. I got a table and chair, and put up some bookshelves, and made the best room as habitable as possible. This room had a tokonama, or recess, painted a dark grey, and a scroll, a crystal, and a vase of flowers put in it gave the necessary decoration to the severely bare interior. For the first few months I slept in one of the back rooms, but later, when it got very hot, I only used the one room. I had one servant, and as we got up at dawn, we also went to sleep very early, and usually by nine o'clock the house was in darkness and silence. One night I was awakened, and heard talking and laughing in the next room, only separated from me by a thin screen. Someone was telling a story in an animated voice, and his auditor every now and then ejaculated, Norahodi, meaning to be sure, and Sodasuka, is that so? but the voices were kept low and the laughs were subdued. Just then the kitchen clock struck two. I was annoyed at my servant having friends in at that hour, and in the room next mine, and determining to have it out with him in the morning, I fell asleep. Next morning he absolutely denied that anyone had been in the house, and became very indignant when I insisted on what I had heard. Two nights later I again heard a conversation going on, and reluctantly got out of bed and from under the mosquito curtains to investigate. A low chuckling laugh, and then a snatch of song, and I pushed back the sliding fusuma. 
The room was in darkness, but I had a little electric torch which I used in the colliery, and, pressing its button, the room was brightly lit. Inside the mosquito curtain, Tanaka lay soundly sleeping. No one else was in the room. Indeed, but for the futon or mattress covered by the net, it was completely bare, and the talking still went on, seeming now to come from the room behind me. I awoke Tanaka, and we went out into the garden. No one was stirring, and the sounds came from inside the house. Away, down the road, three miners were returning from a night shift, and my servant wanted to run and fetch them. But I did not see the object of doing so. The mosquitoes were very bad, and I wanted to get back under the nets, conversations or no conversations, and so we re-entered the house. Silence reigned, and I went back to bed, but not to sleep, for the remainder of that night. Tanaka took the opportunity, while I was at the colliery the next morning, to pack up his few belongings and decamp, leaving a letter saying he could not stay in a house frequented by demons. I got a girl in from the village as a makeshift, and afterwards another servant, but no one would stay in the house after nightfall. I moved my bed into a room at the back, but still used the other room as a living-room, and soon became used to the fact that it was haunted. Often, during the day, there were noises coming from near the tokonama or recess, as though someone was cracking his finger-joints, a habit the Japanese have. On several occasions, flowers put in the vase below the hanging scroll were taken out of their vase and arranged lying on a tray. One afternoon I brought my bed into the room, as the autumn was now getting cold, and I had been unwell for some days and wanted the benefit of the afternoon sun. I sent the servant to buy some stamps at the post-office, a mile away, and stepped into the garden to gather some late dahlias. Looking up, I distinctly saw a movement in the room I had left, through the pane of glass led into the paper-covered shoji. Dropping my flowers, I pressed my face against the pane, and saw the bedclothes, which the servant and myself had arranged only five minutes previously, had been whisked off and were lying on the floor. Twice after this, coats hung on a peg near the tokonama were found almost immediately lying on the floor at some distance, one having been pulled from its peg with such force as partly to tear it. On many nights, when I woke up, I heard talking in the next room, and gradually came to distinguish a man's voice, sometimes I thought two men's, and certainly that of a woman and a baby. All the village were now talking of the haunted house, and now and then neighbors came in to listen to the mysterious sounds that came, from time to time, from the tokonoma, but they took good care to be gone before sunset. Winter had now come, and I fell ill, and as the only really pleasant room in the house was made impossible during the long sleepless nights, I redoubled my endeavour to find another house. A baby's wailings were very distinct, then it was hushed by its mother, and then long conversations ensued between her and one or two men. Sometimes there were little taps, as though a tobacco-pipe were being emptied of its ashes, but more often a curious noise was heard which sounded like putter-putter. About this time, an account appeared in all the Japanese newspapers of a bridge in Tokejo, 
which was haunted by a woman, and how this spirit had been laid by priestly intervention, and it was suggested that the same might be tried in the present case. I thought it rather a good plan, but, seeing that it was rather expensive, said that the landlord and not his foreign tenant should defray the cost and arrange the matter. But my landlord, who was very unpopular in the village, and with whom I was not on very good terms, would do nothing. And as, just then, another house near the colliery became vacant, I was able to move, and so at last be free of my ghostly visitants. Everyone knew of the reason for my leaving, and the landlord felt sure he would never find another tenant. After the house had been empty for some time, the landlord himself determined to live in it for some months, in order to demonstrate that things were not so bad after all. He and his wife and their two grandchildren accordingly moved their things across from their other house, but did not at first occupy the room with the tokonoma. Seeing, however, that their object in being in the house at all would be defeated unless this room was used, they hung some pictures in the recess, placed a bronze-flower vase on a carved stand below them, and also moved in a gilt shrine containing an image of Buddha. A few friends were asked in, but all left at sunset. Next morning I heard that there had been considerable disturbance at the house, and that the younger grandson had been taken with convulsions. The same day a move was made again to their former abode. The house was closed, and still remains empty. A temple on a hill nearby was being repaired, and, on the completion of the work, a priest came to hold a service. The headman of the village took the opportunity of consulting with him, and together they went to see my late landlord. The facts brought to light, many of which were vaguely known in the district, are as follows. The house had been built about one hundred and fifty years previously by the head of the family, which was then of more consequence than at present, although it still owned considerable property in pine forests and rice fields. A younger brother of the original builder had conspired against his feudal lord and had committed suicide, Harry Carey. It was not known in which room, but probably it was in the principal one. The next tragedy, that was known of, had happened some fifteen years before, when the son-in-law, the father of the two boys already mentioned, was found hanging from a hook near the wooden ceiling of the room with the tokonoma. He had been away for some time in Tokejo, had spent a great deal of money, and, on his return, had quarrelled violently with his wife. She had run out of the house with her children, and had stayed on the hillside all night. Next morning her husband was found as above stated. Some months later, again in the same room, on the eve of the birth of her posthumous child, this woman killed herself by drinking poison, made from the leaves of a shrub still growing in the garden. During the convulsions which preceded her death, the child was born, but dead. The priest said there was no doubt that the spirits of these various people, related by family ties and lives, passed among the same surroundings, and who had all come to a dreadful violent end in the same house, and probably the same room, were earthbound, and were in the habit of assembling and conversing in the room where their lives had come to an end. 
each addition would strengthen and intensify their bondage, and the priest expressed his surprise that the spirits were not actually visible. There was a good deal of discussion as to the terms for a service and ceremony to free the house from these ghostly tenants and to give them rest. I offered a small sum, but as they were, after all, the relations of the landlord, it was upon him that the bulk of the expense fell, and he refused to provide the necessary funds. His argument was that, even with the spirits laid, no one now would rent the house, and so he would not spend any money on it. Whether he also thought that the spirits were as happy holding their ghost parties round the Tokonoma as they would be if they were at rest, he did not say, as such thoughts would be contrary to all Japanese ideas on the subject. Anyway, the house is now closed, the heavy wooden shutters are rolled across the verandas and bolted, the garden is overgrown and choked with weeds, and the only time when there is human activity about it is when the orange trees, burdened with fruit, yield their golden harvest. Signed, G. Salas. To revert again to my own experiences, I am often sorry, extremely sorry, I was ever brought into contact with the unknown. As I said in one of the early chapters of this book, I did not go out of my way to seek the superphysical, it came to me, and it has never given me any peace. I feel its presence beside me at all times. In the evening, when I am writing, the curtains that are tightly drawn across the closed windows slowly bulge. The candlestick on the mantel-shelf rattles. A picture on the wall swings out suddenly at me, and, when I go to bed and try to sleep, I frequently hear breathings and faraway whispers. Some of these presences, no doubt, have been with me always. Most probably they were with my ancestors, whilst others have attached themselves to me in my nocturnal ramblings. My wife, who was a confirmed disbeliever before our marriage, has long since thrown aside her scepticism, and for a good reason. She has had many startling proofs of the power the spirit has of making itself manifest. The night a near relative of mine died, both she and I heard a loud crash on the panel of our bedroom door, and I, though I only, saw a hooded figure standing there. Also, besides having heard the banshee, my wife has seen objects moved by superphysical agency, seen them fanned by a wind that is apparently non-existing, had small stones and other articles thrown at her, and heard all sorts of queer, unaccountable sounds, laughs, sighs, and moans. Three ghostly incidents have happened to me within the past twelve months. The first was in Red Lion Square. It was twilight. I was alone on the top floor of the house, and no one else was in the building, saving the daughter of the caretaker, who was in the basement. Suddenly footsteps, slow, ponderous footsteps, began to ascend the stairs, which, being uncarpeted and of oak, carried the sound from the hall. Wondering who it could be, I called out. There was no reply, and the steps drew nearer. On the landing immediately beneath me they halted. I went out and looked down. No one was to be seen, 
and the steps immediately began to descend. I followed them right down, a few stairs behind, till they reached the hall, where they abruptly ceased. I learnt afterwards that these footsteps were quite a common phenomenon in the house, which had long been haunted by them. My second experience occurred in the Moscow Road, Bayswater. Feeling a heavy weight on my bed one night, and wishing to remove it, I put out my hand. It was immediately seized and held in a warm grip. I sat up in bed, but could see no one. The hand that clasped mine was very soft and small, unmistakably that of a woman. I felt the wrist and forearm, but beyond the elbow there was nothing. I was rather alarmed at this occurrence at the time, as I have a friend who died shortly after experiencing a similar phenomenon. In my case, however, the lady, whose hand I immediately identified as the hand that had clasped mine, and this lady solemnly declared that upon the same night we compared dates, she had dreamed of a hand which was the exact counterpart of mine, and that, upon shaking hands with me that afternoon, she had been instantly reminded of her dream. That there was nothing in common between us, her tastes and outlook on life being absolutely at variance with mine, makes the occurrence, in my opinion, none the less interesting, though somewhat difficult to account for. My last experience occurred only a few days ago, as I was sitting on the stairs of a haunted house near Ealing. I had applied to the landlord for permission to spend the night there, and, pending his reply, had obtained the keys from the agent, in order to see what the house was like by daylight. Having just finished jotting down some notes, a memorandum of something I had suddenly thought of, I paused, still holding the pencil in my hand, whilst my notebook lay open on my knee. I had not sat thus for more than a minute when, with a thrill of surprise, I felt the pencil suddenly taken from my hand, and, looking down, I distinctly saw it, of its own accord, scrawl right across my book. Whether what I afterwards found written in my notebook was written by the spirit that haunted the house, or by a projection of one of my own personalities, I cannot say. Neither can I, myself, nor any one to whom I have shown the symbolic writing, tell what it means. The appended is a facsimile. I might add that this is my one and only experience of spirit-writing, and also that it was my one and only experience in the haunted house near Ealing, as I did not succeed in getting leave to spend a night there. Although I must confess I have made little progress so far in my investigations, for my failure to decipher spirit-writing is not the only setback that I have encountered, I still have hopes. I hope that some day, when I am brought face to face with the unknown, in a haunted house or elsewhere, I may be able to hit upon some mode of communication with it, and discover something that may be of real service both to myself and to the rest of humanity. If only I could overcome fear! It is March 28th, midnight, and as I pen these concluding words, my mind reverts to the symbols and the date, March 28th, twelve o'clock. 
Suddenly I hear footsteps, distant footsteps on the road outside, coming in the direction of the house. I glance at my wife, wondering whether she hears them too. She is asleep, however, and, as I covertly watch her, I see a look of terror gradually steal into her face. Clicking steps. They come nearer and nearer. They stop for a moment at our door, and then, thank God, pass slowly on. I look out of the window. The road is absolutely deserted, but from close at hand the sounds are wafted to me. Click, 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 fainter, 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 until they abruptly cease. This is the end of Twenty Years' Experience as a Ghost Hunter, written by Elliot O'Donnell and narrated by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Thank you for listening.